Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 44. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Optograph. And in the news around here, we have our uh, M&T Craft Research Grant is open for applications. Yep, coming up. Yeah, open until June 1st. Yes. At which point we will select from the applicants that we've received. Um, So with this program, this is really cool. We started this last year, and uh, basically we want to open the doors for people who are passionate about uh, craft research, or maybe there's a a particular historic woodworker in your town, or there's a, a furniture form that you're really interested in, um, and you, you've you needed some help to get the research done that you want to do. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, came up with this program to, to do just that, to allow people who are passionate to dive into these areas of research. And so we offer these grants of up to $3,000 yeah. per recipient. And then uh, the grant culminates in uh, all the research Uh, an essay being written that will be published in the magazine. Well, and the other thing that's cool about it, it's bringing two different parties together. The other thing is, you know, we've had, believe it or not, we've had people emailing us asking, is there some program that you guys are doing that I can donate to to facilitate this kind of stuff? It's amazing. People are amazing. Uh, They are. And so we created this research grant. So those of you who want to support people who want to do research and, you know, to recover Almost nearly lost things, uh, craft things in the world. Um, if you're, if you want to support that, this is a, a way you can do that by donating twenty five dollars, hundred dollars, whatever you want to give um, to to fund these people to go do this research um, stuff that no one else is doing. Um, which yeah. is not just covering old territory that's been done. Uh, we're looking for stuff that you know. Right now, we have someone. Uh, she's been researching uh, plane making, Taiwanese plane making. Yeah. And, you know, just looking at all these different um, things that not many people are publishing about. So, um, but these are important, valuable craft skills. And so this program's exciting. It's exciting for those who want to do the research and exciting for those who want to facilitate it and make sure that we're um, celebrating and preserving our craft heritages. Yeah. So uh, check out the craft research grant over at our website, um, www mortisandtenonmag.com. Okay, good And you'll see the grant research tab. That's the easiest way to find it. Yeah, the tab's up at the top. And then uh, you can get information if you're interested in donating to that or if you're interested in applying for a grant. Yep. Uh, All the information you need is there. And like I said, the deadline is June 1st. Mm -hmm. Uh, So get that in. And also we've been, uh, we just finished up a term um, our, our third term of the um, the Mortis and Tenon Apprenticeship Program. Yeah. This is our eight-week online program we've talked about before, um, but we just finished up term three, and Mike and I finished reading through all of the essays that the students turn in at the end, uh, reflecting on their time, their journey through this skilled cultivation time period, yeah. starting from the beginning, uh, eight weeks of learning, sharpening, and and. Uh, different joinery skills, stock prep, green woodworking, finishing, you know, kind of a crash course through each of these uh, these skills. And at the end, they feel like yeah. they've been drinking from the fire hose. Yeah. Um, and so this is a time to reflect on it and to say, you know, what have I gone through? What have I learned? Where were my struggles? What do I want to do next? Yeah. Uh, so it's been really encouraging to, to read these essays. And I mean, we get people leaving their lifelong careers. Yeah. 
walking to away become hand, hand to, tool woodworkers to work and to to build furniture or oh. to pursue these skills. It's that was I mean, not what we were specifically trying to do with the right. program, but it's been so inspiring. People are yeah. their lives are changing. It's yeah, insane. I I would say reading those essays might be my favorite pro- part of the program for us. Totally, because uh, awesome. you know every student writes a five hundred word essay, and I mean week seven is a lot of fun. That's that's Greenwood week, so we have people going out into the woods with axes and cutting down trees and sending you know posting videos of that. Mm-hmm. That's great fun. But reading the essays is amazing. It's it's mind blowing. Yeah, and it's not exact. We are literally choking down tears. We're, yeah, we're trying totally. to hold back tears and say whoa yeah like we get emotional reading these things because people are you know excited yeah Um, and and it it really seems that so many people writing these essays have it this is like a waypoint for them mm -hmm. it is it is a new a new place to start a new trajectory in life and whether that is leaving your job and and choosing the career that you are the the passion that you've always wanted which a few people have have done mm-hmm. uh, from this program or whether that's just incorporating more handcraft into your life actually finally going and renovating that outbuilding on mm-hmm. your property so you have a shop mm-hmm. um, you know you finally built that workbench and you're actually going to go and build that tool chest now we've yeah. we've heard all of these different things from people uh, in the past term mm-hmm. uh, who are doing these things and making these changes yeah and so one of one of the essays um, one of our students, he wanted to sign up for the program, um, but he was just too busy. Uh, he and his wife moved, I think, and they were trying to get things settled. He's like, oh, I can't do it. I got to do this and that and whatever. And he kept saying how busy he was and he couldn't get right. to it. And his wife gifted for his birthday, gifted yeah. him, uh, uh, he, she signed him up for the program. <laughs> yeah. She said, she said, we'll make it work. No more excuses. Yeah. You know what you want to do. I want to see you do it. That's so great. And he said, that's so awesome because great, I don't have a workshop set up. I don't have a yeah. bench. I don't have tools tuned up. And that was exactly what I needed. Yeah. I needed to be able to have that kind of uh, built-in uh, due date pressure, you know, external pressure to say, you got to get ready, man. Yeah. This class is going to start. And uh, this is so exciting to see that, to see someone really diving in um, and, and saying, okay, I have these excuses about someday I'll go do this, but... I want to do it, and now's yeah. the time. Now's just kind of the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've really enjoyed that, and uh, as Joshua mentioned, we are opening. We've opened registration for the next term. Yes, term four, and that begins uh, beginning of next month. Yep, that's when that term I starts. The date, but it's always like the f- yeah. first first Monday or whatever. Yeah, the sixth, I think. So, um, uh, and people have been signing up. Yep. And there are, as of this recording, there are still some slots left yeah. for the summer term. So if you're hearing this and this podcast is not three years old, right? <laughs> uh, hustle right over and get signed up. Hopefully, three years from now, we'll still be uh, Running the having program. slots available. Yeah. But um, yeah, hustle on over and and find uh, the apprenticeship program. Get signed up um, and don't don't put it off. I mean, if this is something you want to do, you know, uh, it's great to see people learning these skills, whether you do it on your own or you do it through a program or you sign up for some class somewhere. Um, don't put off stuff you want to do. It's it's an exciting uh, and a rewarding thing. Yeah, it is. Um, so kind of along those lines of what uh, so many of these uh, students of our apprenticeship program have realized is that 
uh, the only way to learn to do something is to actually do it. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about that today. Yeah. Um, well, and we've been thinking about it a lot. Yes, because we've been doing a lot of we've things. We've been doing a lot of things. Um, as you know, as you remember, uh, you listeners of the podcast, uh, we are in the middle of a lot of construction right now. Um, we are restoring uh, an 1810 Cape that my family is going to live in. Um, but in the meantime, we have a small timber frame, like a, a timber frame tiny house, which is you know, it's 18 by 24. So it's a, a sizable tiny house. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a timber frame that we're outfitting to be able to, for my family, we're going to move into it in actually a couple of weeks. Um, we're going to move into it for the duration of the the, uh, the 1810 house uh, restoration. Right. The, the house is completely disassembled in pieces and labeled. Right. So it's a big project. Yeah. And so as we're getting through the cottage um, and getting it set up, running a water line and uh, getting the propane stove hooked up and all sorts of random things, I'm feeling the weight of... Like, I knew it would feel this way, and this is actually why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. I'm in over my head. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of stuff that I've never done before, um, a lot of which Mike has done before, but I haven't. And so sort of. it's just like, <laughs> it's just this whole um, dive into the deep end to try to learn about the world and how it works. Right. So we're, we're, we feel like we can relate to our... our apprentices in the program who dive into week one and they feel in over their yeah. head oh my that's goodness where sharpening we this is i don't get this at all yeah like totally i i'm not getting it my my irons aren't sharp i think i'm running over the edge what am i doing yep. ah that's the way i feel every day on this construction yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and so it is interesting to think about because um you know a lot of even if i've say done wiring before haven't done it in a while. And a lot of the stuff that we're doing for this project is pretty new to me. Mm. And so I would say... Wait, I thought you knew what you're... Oh, ah, no, no, I made that up. <laughs> I saw a video on YouTube once about wiring. So. We're YouTubing our way through this yeah, whole project. Like, Wait, let me find a video. Um, but yeah, uh, watching a video on how to do something is not the same as doing something. Right. It's kind of like having a Zoom meeting is not the same as having a face-to-face conversation. There's right. a whole lot that you miss. Uh, and reading a book about woodworking right. is not woodworking. You are not then an expert woodworker. Right. But uh, in this day and age, lots of people think that because they've read a, a book or a nice blog post or about a Wikipedia article, or a Wikipedia article yeah. that they are then um, authorities on that subject yeah. and uh it is actually nothing can really be farther from the truth because they don't know what they don't know they think they have knowledge and i put yeah. myself in this category very often mm-hmm. i think i have knowledge on something that i have don't have firsthand experience and that's right. a very f- physical term right firsthand your hands have done it right right and so um you know why would that be you know why why would people feel that way and i think it's we've a customer so, uh, ourselves to feel a uh, comfortable outsourcing mm-hmm. uh, comfortable saying i'm going to look outside to some supplier some specialist to tell me what's true and so we're used to looking outside looking to wikipedia wikipedia is a source and so i know if i read wikipedia i will also have attained that mm-hmm. now, we've talked about things like this on the podcast before but there's a there's a quotation from um 
an author who has been deeply uh, influential to us, Ivan Illich. Um, in his book, uh, Tools for Conviviality, he talks a, a lot about these kinds of things, uh, people and tools and society and how uh, people can um, make a society that, you know, they can use their tools in a way that's actually convivial, that makes them, that gives them personal growth and, and sort of this sense of holism and not just uh, compartmentalized. So he has this, he has this saying that I felt like I've been thinking about in light of everything I've been struggling with. So he says this, most people have staked their self images in the present structure of society and are unwilling to lose their ground. Hmm. They have found security in one of the several ideologies that support further industrialization. They feel compelled to push the illusion of progress on which they are hooked. They long for and expect increased satisfaction with less input of human energy and with more division of competence. They value handicraft and personal care as luxuries, but the ideal of a more labor-intensive yet modern production process seems to them quixotic and anachronistic. And so people, he's saying people think of skill building, having skills, handicraft as a luxury thing. Mm-hmm. That it's just sort of this fun extra because the real world um, is dealt with, you know, is addressed with devices. We have mm-hmm. we have a device for that. We have a, a software program for that. We have specialists to do that. And so, if you're really going to talk about cultivating skills, that's really a luxury thing because mm-hmm. we don't need that, you know, now in the modern world. Right. Yeah, and um, it comes down to this. Uh, you know, we talk sometimes about the device paradigm, right? Where you have the sense in which um, let's say the, the, the tools and the devices that we use are becoming more and more complex, but the interface is so simple and so um, intuitive, right? Intuitive, yeah. Um, but basically that intuitive interface, like that touch screen on your phone that you just swipe and you touch apps and they come on, that's hiding an extremely complicated uh, device and hardware and software behind it that... Um, is beyond our understanding and comprehension. Mm-hmm. But what it offers is a really super simple menu that you can customize and you feel like you are uh, in creative control of that device. Right. Right. But all it's doing is offering you a menu. Like you have this fixed number of things that you can do with it and no more. Mm-hmm. So um, more and more people are, are drawing on that idea of, oh, I get this big menu, therefore I can customize it to myself, therefore I have this creative agency. Right. It's like Matthew Crawford's Build-A-Bear analogy, right? right? You're not building a bear, you're choosing from a menu and someone else builds the bear and gives it to you, but then you feel like that's your bear because you yeah. did it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, very, very interesting. Um, and, uh, and I think the other thing is just the ubiquity of... Um, Online purchasing, Amazon.com, you can get anything you want there, shipped to your house, cheaper than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so we do feel this this false sense of agency that, hey, I can do or can have mm-hmm. anything at my whim. You know, yeah. it's, it's maddening to me if I, you know, go online and I can't find a book I'm looking for. Right. Wait, no, I need to have this book. How can there how can this book not be available to me? You yeah. know? 
And this is kind of what this, this technology can do, that it can um, give us a false sense of agency, that, no, I have a grasp of the world. I'm in control here. And, and we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the, the quote here, the part of the quote from Illich, uh, he talks about valuing handicraft and personal care as luxuries. So uh, our, our society sees value in these, like we talk about craft washing, right? Everything's mm-hmm. handcrafted. People, yeah. that's a value statement. You know, right. when, when you apply handcrafted to something, it becomes more desirable because somehow we intuitively know that that is valuable. Yeah, um, and I actually don't think that's a crock. I think there is something to a, a value of it, but I mm-hmm. think what's happened is, you know, corporations have hijacked it and all yes. of a sudden Amazon.com, yeah. uh, they, I don't remember what they called it, but it's some like, you know, Amazon craft or whatever, but right. everyone's trying to hijack that and use it for their purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he says... We value these things as luxuries, but the ideal of a more labor-intensive yet modern production process is like an anachronism. Yeah. So if you were to take like a Schumacher kind of perspective on a modernized production system that puts lots of people to work, that maybe disposes of some machines to get hands in there, mm-hmm. uh, we see that as like, oh, that's that, that's not realistic. That's, like, that's the wrong direction. That's silly, yeah. Or like um, Gandhi's vision of you know the spinning wheel and everyone making their own textiles you know by hand, uh, it, it's this picture of of production which is modern, but is not the kind of modern vision that so many people have because of the relentless well, push of yeah. And I think so that comes down to um, productivity. And someone's going right. to say, well, that's not as efficient as running machines. That's exactly the, exactly. the issue. Yeah. When you're saying efficiency is more important than people, mm-hmm. we're on a bad path. That's a bad path. That's a bad path. Yeah. So um doesn't mean we don't need clothes. We don't need grains. We don't need these things, but we should, we want to, the, the ultimate, what we want to shoot for, and EF Schumacher was shooting for this is something that and uh illich talking about conviviality uh, right. it's it's not just relentless pr- uh, productivity and efficiency for the sake of efficiency right but it's we want efficiency so that people can thrive right okay that's it's great but we want people to thrive that's the ultimate goal uh-huh. so if we're getting efficient production of things at the expense of people and that's not working yeah. out that's and counterproductive. Pretty sure that's kind of where we are today. Yeah. Uh, just saying, you know, there's um, all kinds of damage being done uh, to to not just people, but to environments, and um, you know, some of this damage is going to be hard to reverse. But uh, we we do need to look at you know how we're making the commodities that we need and and start asking questions about that if we're not already asking those questions. So there's like the big scale. There's like, you know, uh, you refer to environment crisis. Right. But then there's like this, the small scale, the micro scale, me and how yeah. I how can interact I with the world. Right. So. Yeah. And uh, part of it goes back to, you know, the, the one thing that we like to pick on um, is the shaper origin. Right. <laughs> so uh, again, this is a a tool or a device that offers you a menu, a fairly wide menu, but it's still a menu, um, leaving you feeling creative, right? 
you, you can choose from the menu to do the things you want. You apply your tape so that your origin can read your surface and you can cut joinery, you can make furniture and all that kind of stuff. But behind that creative process is this massive industrial thing to make this machine and to maintain this machine and then you have to learn it and things like that. So this is like Illich was saying, people have found security in one of the several ideologies that support further industrialization, right? Yeah. So that that is a uh, a device that lets you jump over all the skill building mm-hmm. and go right to making kind of whatever you can envision that you can pull off the menu. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about a different tack altogether. Well, and so the thing about this, you know, I I do a lot of reading about um, technology, philosophy of technology, and technological criticism stuff, and it's really common. Um, I try to not read these books, but it's common for people to miss uh, to miss the point of critiquing technologies. They'd say, "Oh yeah, these technologies uh, they don't work so well." Right? No, they they're, work they're not right. very effective. So, like we've seen some um, some videos of people using the Shaper Origin to cut dovetails, and it is painful to watch how right. arduous and convoluted and messy yeah. that whole process is. Yeah. And so you could say, see, that's not a good technology because I can just cut it faster with a handsaw. Right. That may be true, but that's missing the point. Uh What we're talking about is we're not saying, oh, well, this is more efficient than that's efficient. No, no, no. The point is, is that I'm more concerned about that getting even more efficient. Yeah, it will get better. It will get better. Everything gets better. I remember reading one book that was written a long time ago complaining about email and how email's bad because it... And the thing keeps crashing and my computer glitches and it's yeah. just faster to write by hand or right. to type it out. Yeah. Obviously that's not true anymore. And that's why it's an issue. Right. Um, that the the further we go down this path of devices and the better they get, it's not fixing the problems, it's deepening the problems. Right. So again, we're recording this podcast on a computer. We're not, you know, people like to throw in the word Luddite. This isn't a Luddite comment, it's just saying when we're thinking about technologies, we want tools for conviviality, mm-hmm. not tools for uh, relentless productivity at the expense of people. Right. And so, you know, th- this whole uh, paradigm can be paralyzing as well. Yes. And we see that. Like, there are some interesting studies out, like, um, you know, looking at these broad swaths of populations and asking, how, how capable do you feel like you are? Like, how competent? Like, this list of tasks... How confident are you in being able to do them? And so there were a couple studies done in the UK, and uh, these studies found that of adults, 20% uh, do not feel confident to change a light bulb. Now, this is the really scary part. Wait, uh, so wait. sorted by age groups, 84% of millennials did not feel like they were confident enough to change a light bulb. Oh. And they would rather... And so... Uh, what? Of that same group, the millennials, three quarters are afraid to assemble flat pack furniture and they'd rather just pay someone else to do it. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm kind of afraid of assembling yeah. flat pack furniture, yeah. but okay. I, I certainly wouldn't. Yeah. I'd dive in, right? I, I'm going in. I'm going to do yeah. it. Um, a third of UK adults cannot cook a single meal, they don't know how to do it. Wow. 
so let's make fun of the UK because I'm sure we're way better here in, in America. Yeah, you know how I know how to cook a meal. I throw the microwave. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, those are uh, yeah. And here's another one: one third of adults in the UK say they cannot navigate without the use of their smartphone. Cannot oh, yeah. get from one place. Yeah, to another. I believe that. Yeah. So here's the other thing: with if if you were to just guess, just take a wild guess. Let's say you took these questions onto the street and you asked people, right? Mm-hmm. You had these, and you asked a hundred people, right? It's a long day. If I were to ask you, how many of those people do you think were a hundred percent completely honest right. about their capabilities, or at least uh, they were that their perception of their abilities matches their abilities? Mm-hmm. I bet it's not, you know, one right. for one. Right. Um, I bet it's not 100% accurate. So the, we all, this, there's this known phenomenon that we all have this sense of our abilities that don't match reality. Right. Um, and maybe in some cases, we actually can do things that we don't think we can do, but so therefore we don't do them. Yeah. We're paralyzed. Or we confidently think, I could do it if I wanted to, I just don't want to. Right. Oh, yeah. And we that's, can't. That's a common That's one. also common. There are some interesting studies about... Um, people rating their skills and abilities and how they always rate themselves higher if they can hear the people around them saying what they're rating themselves. Wow, yeah. You always rate yourself higher if your neighbor is rating themselves higher. So that's kind of a scary thing. That's a great way to build up a society. Imagine a society that that builds itself up so much where everyone believes they're competent and so then they are then unconsciously you know, making themselves more competent than their neighbor or bringing up their own assessment of their competence because the people around them seem so competent, but actually no one's really competent. Sure. Uh, So that seems hazardous. The other path then is uncomfortable to say, I don't really have a grasp on that. I don't really know how to do that, but I am willing to give it a shot. Can you help me? Can you give me some tips? Can you, whatever. And, uh, or I'll read this book or I'll watch this video and try my hand at it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a, a researcher who's looked at, um, Chiksen Mihai's, um, understanding of flow, this, this flow state that a person is in when they're, you know, doing this work that's creative and engaging and you kind of get in the flow. You're just, it's, everything's working really well. Um, and so Stephen Coulter was talking about this and, uh, he put it in a way that's, super interesting to me to try to get at this, like the sense of um, uh, this tension of, you know, discomfort with what you're doing, but also the embrace of it. And he said, people who experience the most flow are those who get used to being uncomfortable. Mm. And so you think about, you know, whether it's extreme sports or even just you know, baseball. I was throwing Mm. my baseball uh, yesterday with my boys um, at the end of the day and teaching them to catch a ball, and they're throwing it back to me, and um, it's uncomfortable. They're afraid of the ball hitting them, and so right. they dive out of the way, and they keep missing. And you have to, I'm trying to instill in them, you have to get used to being uncomfortable. This mm-hmm. ball is coming at your body. Yeah. You can't dive away, yeah. or you will not catch Go it. Go towards it. Yeah. yeah. And so um, th- that is a, a picture of what we all do in our life, that we see some ball coming at us, Mm-hmm. And the first inclination for a lot of people, myself included, is to dive out of the way. I would catch that, but I don't really want to. Like, I could I, catch it. Yeah, I could. I could catch that, but yeah. I'm. I wasn't really interested. You know, yeah. I don't have time. Yeah, it was super interesting because 
Um, so I was uh, teaching my seven-year-old. Uh, he caught. He could not catch the ball. We were throwing it, and he was not able to catch it. So I got a little closer and said, "Okay, hold it out. You know, let's catch, let's catch this, right?" So using and, a glove. Yeah, we yeah, have gloves. Baseball glove. Yep. And so I threw the ball to him. So he's learning. So it's not just catching a ball with his hands. It's how to use this glove thing. Right. Um, and it, we were playing last year, but you know, winter and yeah. he he's rusty. So we're, I threw the ball to him and he fumbled a few times. And then once he got it, he already, he, he caught it and he said, oh, I get it. And immediately he started instructing his younger brother on how to do it <laughs> immediately because he was like, oh no, this is how you do it, Wyeth. Just do it like this. And, mm-hmm. you got, and so it was great because learning that skill of catching the baseball in the glove um, was something that he could not put his hands on. He couldn't get a grasp of literally until he did it, until he, right. until he uh, practiced it. Yeah. And I think going back to the essays from our students, uh, we heard that kind of thing over and over. And we, we regularly hear that from them, that they go into some of these operations having thought for years how scary it is to cut half-blind dovetails. So they just didn't do it, yep. right? So but like, I, would I say have the idea. Sounds like that's the majority of people. Yeah, right. Yeah. They're like, I had the idea, but it just seemed, oh, I just just didn't want to do it. But now you made me do it. And they're <laughs> great. This is great. Yeah. Um, and so we, we see that there's this fear element, this discomfort element that you have to step into. You have yep. to accept for what it is. Like there's no setting it aside. Don't pretend it's not there. Right. But you have to realize that that is part of the process of learning. That's yep. part of the process of gaining competence. Yeah. Um, and one way um, that it's been said is to describe this, to, to describe these skills as owning it. Mm. You got to own it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're in telling someone how to, um, say hit a ball that's being pitched your direction how to hit it out of the park yeah you gotta own it you can't you can't be half-hearted about swinging the baseball bat right you have to own it and so whether that's acting or you know whatever skill you're trying to 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 do yeah you you have to have this sense of um of ownership of that skill where you step into the the ball flying right at your face yeah or the grain that is uh you know laughing at you as you as you are trying to plane it and you say, no, I, I'm going to engage, I'm going to figure right. this out. And that's that right there, that moment is where skill development, confidence, ability is developed. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really like the baseball analogy um, because part of you stepping would. in, yeah, I, I, I used to be obsessed with baseball. Ask me about the 1993 Phillies. I still remember all the statistics. Um, but part of stepping into the batter's box is the knowledge and very real, I would say, fear that you could get hit in the head mm. by the ball. And how fast is that? Yeah, and it, depending on you know who the pitcher is. Yeah. Um, so there is there is risk involved. There is certainly no certainty about outcome, right? So if you go to a, um, say you go to a batting cage and there's a pitching machine and every pitch is right down the middle, you could step in there with all the swagger you want. You're not worried about a thing because certainly you know where the ball will be. You could hold the bat there and it'll hit the bat, <laughs> right? Um, but if you step into the batter's box, the risk is there for outcomes that are not only 
uh, unpleasant or unwanted, but painful, mm. right? And so when you're doing woodworking, you have the same opportunities for that spectrum of risk, right? You could get your, uh, your machine or your device to guarantee an outcome. You're stepping into the, the, the batting cage, right, with the machine throwing the ball for you. So you can predict that and everything. You're removing the risk, but you're also removing so much of the interesting and, and beautiful element of that game, yep. right? Like the, the head game between the pitcher and the hitter and, and you know, the nuances of, you know, pushing the batter back off the plate a little bit and, you know, all these different things that are part of that game, that are part of the tradition of that game. Mm. Um, and the, the, it's the same with well, And that's because the pitcher, the pitcher and um, the hitter are, it's a relationship. Yes, it's, it is. It's a duel. It is a duel, exactly. It's not just two machines you know, right. lined up to each other. It's it's two people interacting. Mm-hmm. And so there all are all those uh um levels to pushing the batter and, and yeah. hitting back and intimidation and all those kinds of things that are just so much of you know, full of life. Yeah. And uh I know we're we're gonna talk about a, in a little bit we're gonna talk about s- some of this stuff, but um it reminds me of the big push nowadays in in major league baseball for um, what they call sabermetrics it's using statistical analysis to um, really not just inform the way a manager makes changes but to basically dictate they, they tell a, basically yeah. the managers become a computer mm-hmm. right they take all the statistics they say in the seventh inning of a game this batter bats 182 against left-handed pitching so we're going to bring in a lefty in the seventh inning to face this batter. You know, it's it's micromanaging at a very fine statistical level to try and get the outcome you want. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, great because you don't have to hire managers anymore. Well, right. I mean, the manager is just a stat- statistician. I yeah. mean, he's not. He doesn't have. You know, you don't need to have like the sense of the game, or mm-hmm. you know, like you're talking about that the mind game. Like yeah. what that doesn't allow for is for a human being, the player, to step up. And do something beyond what his stats say right. he can it's do. It's fixed. It's fixed. This right. player is this. Yeah, it's done. a reductionist way of of uh, managing the game, and I I quite frankly think it's kind of a bad way to go. Yeah. So one of the things I've been thinking about, um, I've been studying about the, the history of thoughts of craftsmanship, um, and there's this fascinating thing um, uh, looking at the um, and the ancient Hebrew language um, and studying the Bible and looking at how the way that that language of this, this earliest recording of craftsmanship, right. um, building the tabernacle and how the words that were used, it's really interesting to me that the word for craftsmanship or skill is the same word for wisdom. So in hmm. the, the, uh, the King James translation, yeah. the 1611 translation of the Bible, um, it actually describes, instead of the word skill, it, it uses the word wisdom. Um, it has the same idea that um, you have wisdom is skill. And I think that's a really insightful way to look at it. So if you're thinking about, you know, if you'd say to someone, what is wisdom? Uh, you have a picture. It's like, it's all about ideas. You're like a sage. Yeah, you have, uh, you're, you're intelligent, you know things, and you know about things. You have wisdom. But that doesn't work when you're talking about carving a piece of wood. Right. Uh, and so the, the ability to actually enact that in the world 
is in ancient Hebrew, it's the same word. So, You're so actually, Al Breed is a wise carver. Right, exactly. He has and that, wisdom in that area. Yeah, and so what's interesting about um, jumping back around to Cheeks at Mihai and flow, when, when a person is in a creative state of flow, um, there are certain uh, criteria that are really important. And one of them is having rules and boundaries that you're coming up against, mm. right? It's not just free. I think about, you know, I mean, there are limitations to all things because we're creatures. We're not, you know, like infinite. But so like if you have uh, free dance, there are fewer rules. And so there's there's there are less constraints. Mm. Um, but if let's say you have... Um, uh, a predetermined dance routine mm-hmm. that you're supposed to, there are a lot of fixed boundaries and you have to really be on and pay attention, right? right. And so, um, so Cheeks and Mihai is talking about when a person is downhill skiing, there are some fixed realities to downhill <laughs> skiing. <laughs> yes, there <laughs> you are. Know, you can't screw around or let your mind wander. Mm-hmm. You have, you are coming up against the reality of the way the world is. Right. Yes, gravity forest and yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cliff, right? So, so there are right and wrong ways to downhill ski, mm-hmm. and there are right and wrong ways to wire an outlet. And there, yeah. in either the joint that you just cut and that for that table, it, either it's tight or it's not. And so, wisdom, it's the ability to to know the variables in that circumstance: your skis, the snow, the trees or the wood grain and how sharp that saw is. Um, and then to be able to, uh, to accommodate yourself to work with it, to go with the grain of the universe mm. as it is. To know the way the world is and say, now I want to engage with that. I get it. So it's not just head knowledge, but now you actually go and do. Yeah, it's interesting. Like in the genre of, of ancient wisdom literature, you know, so much of it is very practical in that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's saying it's, it's applied insight, right? It's having yep. this knowledge of the world, but how to use it, you know, it's not just, um, for uh, the academy, just an intellect, intellectual pursuit. Right. Yep. But it's for the world. It's for living. It's for life. It's, it's, it's how s- you bring yourself through the day. It's that old sense of cosmology, the cosmos, the world. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's an ordering. It's what is the world? And how do we interact in the world knowing the way that it is? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Cosmology. Didn't think we'd talk about that. Yeah. Did you think we'd how be talking about there? cosmology on the podcast? But I, I think that's just the thing is when we're talking about handcraft as engaging the world, you got to know how wood is. Mm-hmm. You got to know what the grain is. And so uh, the path to mastery is really getting acquainted with that and, and yeah, working with not it. Not reading about it. You yep. can read about it, but if you read about woodworking and you've never touched a board, uh, you you don't actually have any uh, wisdom, right? So, uh, so yeah, a lot of this, a lot of this is basically. I think there's a way of looking at at um, woodworking or any other thing that is very. Um, Input output oriented. It's very uh, mechanistic, is one right. way to, to say it. So that um, if you say, "Well, I want to be that kind of person," what kind of input do I need to get the output? What books should I read? What videos should I watch so that I can, at the end, get this? Or what um, handy tips can you give me? Right. So that if I just do the tip, 
then at the end I will get a right. successful result. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the idea of, uh, you know, if you are, you want to start running, you get a couch to 5k program, right? Mm. Which is completely deterministic every day what you do get mm. up and you will run three quarters of a mile or you'll do this at this pace and do this at this pace so at the end of the program you can run a 5k and so for a lot of people that's a successful way of doing it because it's all laid out they don't have to think about it they don't have to apply any uh creative thought or understanding of their own bodies they can just do the program yep just follow the recipe just follow the re- yeah and then you get you know your cookies once you well, maybe that's not a good analogy with the couch to 5K. You should probably avoid cookies if you're looking to run. Yeah, I don't think that's part of that program. But it, so this is a reduction of all of life to to simple mechanical principles. Mm-hmm. Input this to get the output. And that is just in the face of craftsmanship. That is just mm-hmm. a total contrary direction to the idea of mastery and engagement in craftsmanship. Um, and it's like it's like if we think of a lot, one way people think about it is this like, um, you know, we're just machines. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you think of, um, we're just mechanical. Everything we do is just j- simply matter in motion. But wasn't this- that a Marilyn Manson album, Mechanical Animals? Oh, I don't know. I'm not a Marilyn Manson I used to fan. listen to Marilyn Manson. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I don't remember. But I, yeah. Anyway. But, but yeah, so that idea is of, is of course absurd. Of course, we are right. not machines. We right. are not robots. When we say, when I tell my wife I love her, I'm not just, uh, you know, it's not just the the workings of my prefrontal my cortex. Brain, my brain hardware is accustomed to your presence in a, it, it, yeah. in a positive and, and beneficial way. And it's sending way. endorphins in a way that, you know, <laughs> right. yeah, no, 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 no. Obviously, I love my wife and I hate evil and I'm inspired by beautiful things and I, you know, I, I want to... Uh, sacrifice for my family all those things are real things right they're not tangible mm-hmm. they can be that the desire can become tangible i can act on it but they're real mm-hmm. and so they can't just be reduced to brain activity right yeah I, again it's it is a tendency of our modern way of thinking to try and reduce everything to explainable processes and um explainable responses right where we're dancing to our dna yeah. right we we're it's it's very deterministic how we will live because we're basically just responding to our impulses and of course society is a constraining part of that right society allows us to it gives us a framework so that our impulses aren't too broadly destructive mm-hmm. right so that right. it constrains the the worst of human impulses within a framework that allows us all to live and work together, but really we're just doing what our programming tells us to do. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because this way of thinking about it, um, you know, when you think about someone who's rigorously scientific or something, or like you have different kinds of people, you have artistic people and you have scientific people and you Uh have like these kind of caricatures of the way people are. And when you go down a path, it kind of, uh, shapes the way you think. And I, it's interesting because I read this fascinating excerpt from Charles Darwin uh, in his journals and later on in his life. He was reflecting on the, past, on the fact that when he was in his younger days, in his 30s, he was really interested in uh, music and poetry and painting and stuff like that. Um, and it, it was a, a delight to him, you know, it gave him pleasure. He really appreciated that. 
Um, but when he really immersed himself in uh, scientific inquiry, and that was all he focused on, he mm. just kept focusing on rigor and scientific analysis. He says he could not endure to read a line of poetry. Mm. And he almost lost his taste for pictures or music. And then he says, uh, he uh, said, my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts and his higher aesthetic tastes atrophied. Whoa. So in his later life, he said, I lost the love of art. I, lo mm. I lost beauty because I was so focused on, you know, as he put it, uh, grinding general laws out of yeah. facts. And I think a lot, of, um, a lot of craft work can be approached that way and often is that we're, we're taking the device paradigm, mm -hmm. we're taking this grinding laws principle to woodworking or skiing or running, mm -hmm. and we're saying, give me the principles. Right. I'm going to grind on it. And we yeah. lose, we just gut the beauty out of it and yeah. the interaction that we have. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is... That, that's quite some power, like the, the grinding. Oh, man. That's, that's, a, that's a tough place to be. I remember reading something about him as well where he said the, the sight of a peacock feather would make him sick yeah. in that time of his life because he couldn't see the beauty of it um, was too much for him because he was only looking at the function. He was just analyzing it. Right. And so uh, w when you bring everything back to this reductionistic viewpoint, you lose those, the intangibles, which might actually be the most important part of it. You know, yeah. um, the, the part that is most fulfilling and most satisfying for us as human beings. Um, because again, we're not simply uh, biological uh, blobs in motion uh, that are... You know, biological machines. Right, yes, <laughs> you know, like, exactly. You know, like flesh and blood machines. That's right. that is not what we are. Yeah, you know, people talk about that. That kind of language is so pervasive in our culture. Um, the way that people talk about their bodies and their health or their activities reflects this thing. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't even uh, aren't even aware of. Yeah, that we kind don't realize how, how much that um, the the scientific way of thinking has has um, pervaded. Our, our reasoning, the way we look at our functions. You were telling me about um, somebody who you, you offered a cup of tea to or something like that? Yeah, um, it's happened actually a few times. My wife offered a cup of tea, which tea is yeah, lovely. To, and we have a, all sorts of different kinds of tea. And, oh, would you like some tea? And the response, this happened a couple of times, the response was, no, thank you, I'm fully hydrated. Right. Like, wait, you're like, what? Wait I said, do you want some tea? tea. I don't know. <laughs> tea, not for What's hydration, for enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, you know, that's the, that's the uh, food as fuel idea. Mm -hmm. That food is just fuel because I am a machine. Right. Um, and, you know, I need to reboot after a long day uh, because I'm just wired to, to be wired. this way. You know, yeah. all that kind of language, um, you know, is, you know, people today are, are, they described their um, response to injustice. They described it as being 
triggered by right. someone else's outrageous statement, that's a passive description saying, mm-hmm. I can't help it, I'm just reacting, I'm just right. a machine. That's my mechanical inclination. Yeah, and, and I think that's just not, that's too reductionistic, it's too small to think about um, the, the beatings of our heart, as it were, mm-hmm. the, the way that we look at the world and beauty. And I think that kind of language is the stuff that led Darwin to kind of say, I just can't see loveliness anymore. Yeah. And it really bothers me. Yeah. Later on, he said, you know, if I could live my life all over again, I would have every week uh, read poetry. And and, and he was listing the stuff that I would have done if I had seen this coming, but I don't, I came down this path and I reduced everything to efficiency and Mm -hmm. to scientific principles. And, um, and it's just been a grinding on me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean uh, that is sort of the, um, the the logical end of that way of thinking about life. Um, but yeah, you're right. We we talk about ourselves as if we're we're machines, uh, and you know how far does this go within uh, daily life? How far does that go within our pursuit of the things that we enjoy doing? Mm-hmm. Like um, one of the things I've been kind of um, blogging about a little bit on our on our blog is uh this idea of um you know time is money Mm. right and so the we always hear about how it is it does not make sense for a woodworker you know you get into the shop and you want to be productive which we can all agree with right and um so like logically then you know what's the best beginner's table saw like because if we're in the shop we're gonna we want to be making stuff we want to because uh, people say, you know, that time you you better make the most of it. Um, and the even if you don't say it consciously, unconsciously, it's time is money, right? Sure. So, if if you are trying to run a business, if you're trying to make furniture as a an entrepreneur, that of course makes sense, and you want to maximize the efficiency of the process so that you can make more furniture per hour, right? Or fewer hours per piece, and um, so in a sense that that is an economic um, consideration that you should weigh. But if you're a hobbyist, and a hobbyist is doing like uh, you said, amateur. What's the literal meaning of that? It's just for the love of for the love of someone it. who. If loves- you're doing it because you love it, why not maximize the enjoyment rather than the number of dollars that you can make. Uh, for in the process, yeah. because you're not selling it, you're not trying to earn money. You're trying to have maximum enjoyment. So why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. But that's not again. That's one of those intangibles that uh, reductionism has no room for. Yeah. And, I mean, even within uh, neuroscience, uh, disclaimer: I am not a neuroscientist, oh, so I, I don't really actually know what I'm talking about with this. But I, I read a Wikipedia article oh, that yeah, told yeah, me. Yeah. That, I'm just kidding. I saw a YouTube video on <laughs> neuroscience. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this this is just a basic fact of neuroplasticity, just mm-hmm. that um, we have these neural pathways, these this idea of habit, and even that the idea of, of habit can be thought of in this mechanical way, but neuroscience doesn't back that up, that it's just simple, uh, fixed, just deterministic, yeah. uh, you know, you input and output, but actually that there's this uh, neuroplasticity that you can... Um, you know, re-channel uh, neural pathways to kind of rework the way that your your brain is firing. And that is, that's not the, we're not reducing it to that. We're just saying even within that, 
that paradigm thinking about um, you know brain firings mm-hmm. uh, that even within that we see that people change people grow and they learn so it's not fixed we're not stuck if you don't know how to cut dovetails yeah. it's not done yeah it's not it's over like, oh oh well you can you can work on that you mm-hmm. can practice that and you can be someone who builds amazing furniture through yeah. practice I, I think some of the most uh, compelling examples of you know, the amazing abilities our brains have in like neuroplasticity are people who have, um, injuries or disabilities. Um, the way that their brains can adjust and work around them. Hmm. It's absolutely incredible. And, uh, this is just off the top of my head. I wish I could remember, uh, the man's name. Um, but, uh, there's this man who I believe he was born blind. Maybe he became blind in an injury. I don't know. I'd have to check. Um, but he basically taught himself to see by making, uh, he'd make clicking noises and listen for the echo. Mm. And he'd practice doing that. His ears became so tuned in to sounds that both passively, like hearing the ambient sound around him and actively by clicking with his tongue, he could create in his mind a picture of his environment. Yeah. To the point where he can identify tree species based on how their crown sounds, and he can ride a bicycle in town. He's completely blind, mm. um, but his brain has has uh, adjusted itself to new inputs and new needs, and it's it's created this amazing. Uh, so basically, this guy teaches others to to see this way. Um, other people who are blind, yeah. um, he, he shows them how you can learn this skill, which is so far beyond my ability to even imagine being yeah. able to do that. Yeah, I could say, well, I can't do that. I right. don't have that skill. <clears throat> right. Or, but no one does until no they, one does until they develop do. it. Uh, so, and that's part of, you know, this, what we're talking about, this, this leap into the, the fearful unknown. Yep. Um, but that is the, the path into... Yeah. Uh, mastery. Uh, Heidegger describes it as throwing yourself forward into death. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> but you you throw yourself that's, into... That's what cutting dovetails is? Yes. Wow. If you're scared of dovetails, you throw yourself forward into death. Yeah. And you say, let me die. Oh. <laughs> Isn't that intense? Whoa. Okay. <laughs> Leave it to philosophers. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, it's that, that uh, desire to to throw yourself into it and to, to be, um, to seek for, um, ownership of that thing and say, I have to catch this ball. I have to stand here while the ball is coming right mm-hmm. at me. I'm going to open my glove and it, there is no option. I'm not moving. I'm catching that ball. Yeah. And that's how you develop skill. That's how you uh, cultivate agency yeah. as it were. I read this fascinating article, um, about neuroscience and connecting. So you ha- you think of neuroscience as like, yeah, this is cutting edge, brand new stuff, and it's doing away with all this ancient stuff. I mean, why are you guys talking about ancient Hebrew language? Right. Why are you guys referencing uh, philosophers? I mean, that's like old stuff, yeah. I mean, especially ancient philosophy. Neuroscience um, is new. Neuroscience stuff. is you know quantifiable and it's new and cutting edge. I read this really fascinating um, uh, uh, article written in a neuroscience um, journal, I believe it was. Um, frontiers in human neuroscience, but it was um, some people writing about um, an Aristotelian uh, virtue ethic and sh- and basically helping it 
better inform our understanding of developing skills. Um, and so uh, the authors here were talking about um, a lot of our, our mechanical way of describing habits, the, the cue, reward cycle, that kind of thing. Um, it actually came from a guy in the 19th century, William James. He was talking about habits, but it's actually not even what he was saying, that it got kind of taken out of control and people living with the device paradigm, as mm. I'm putting it, mm-hmm. want to, you know, distill it down to a principle that they can just apply to life. A and life so, hack. Yeah, life hack, exactly. Yeah. And so now um, when people, there are all these books coming out about habit and stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's in the air. People are excited about it. Yeah. It's been in the air for a while. But Charles Duhigg, I've referenced before, and others, where everything is about habit. And so, again, you can approach that with this device paradigm saying... I'm not happy with my life. Mm-hmm. How do I? That's get... usually where it starts. Yeah, yeah, almost always. I want to get to that point, and so give me some tips, give me some tricks. Uh, oh, I know you guys are neuroscientists. Why don't you give me some techniques that I can apply to my life, and then end up different? Mm-hmm. You know, something can lay on top of me. And this this essay, uh, Mike and I were talking about it. It's just so interesting because it's basically saying, no, let's actually hold on a second. That's a mechanistic way of looking at it. Let's let's actually listen to Aristotle for a little bit because <laughs> he was kind of blowing that out of the water. That way of thinking is against what Aristotle was talking about, um, and I think that is really so. This this uh, article was just basically really opened my mind to see the the complexity of what's going on when you're learning something. Hmm. Um, so in short. Um, We'll we'll link this in the description below the podcast so you all can go read it. Um, it's so interesting. Um, but basically, the, the problem that they see is that the way that habit is, uh, or you know, even skills are thought of today, is that they're they're thought of in this way that's sort of inflexible and automatic. Hmm. So it's like the triggering uh-huh. description. So I'm I'm reactive. I'm reacting to something coming to me. But that's not the way skills work. So if I'm at the shaving horse with a draw knife, it's not a simple one for one. I've trained my brain to do this when this happens. Right. It's deeper than that. Yeah. Because you can't, uh, you can't, there are many situations that you encounter afresh, but somehow people who have mastery or skill are able to negotiate those circumstances, even though they haven't had that particular one. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Aristotle talks about, um, he thinks of habits as dispositions, that um, it's like an, it's an arrangement of uh, human capacity. So like, you are the kind of person who, right? instead of, I have this skill and this skill and this yeah. skill and this skill, you're the kind of person who understands and can do. Yeah. Or like, like, you know, when you have a person who's athletic can go and they can jump into a basketball game they can go Mm. and toss football they can go and play baseball they can go and run and like you are it's not that you're a specialist but that you are inclined in that direction you're a person who knows how to use your body your body right and so when you have that ability it crosses over Mm -hmm. it's not it's not rigid yeah so this this article is talking about how uh the the practice, think about practicing piano, right? Um, every time you're practicing something, it says uh, each new action leaves a footprint 
in the agent, in the person who's doing it, as a kind of learning, mm. a disposition to face further similar situations. So the whole thing about the world is that it, you can't predict everything that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And mastery has to be reflexive and adaptive and know what wood is and what tool I have and my physical abilities so that you can respond to a situation that's similar enough. You're still at the shaving horse. You still have a draw knife, but this piece of wood's different. I've never worked teak (laughs) on a shaving horse. This is weird. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't either. (laughs) What does this mean? Yeah. So yeah, it's a a really fascinating uh, way to look at uh, skill and, and... engagement. Yeah. Um, so there's this quote from Aristotle uh, that is in that article. Uh, he says this, for the things we have to learn before we can do them, we learn by doing them. Men become builders by building and lyre players by playing the lyre. And two, so too, we become just by doing just acts, temperate by doing temperate acts, and brave by doing brave acts. And dovetailers by, by doing, doing dovetail, dovetail acts. acts. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so he's talking about, he's he's putting all these things in the same category of um, building construction. So like wiring the addition we're putting on the cottage, mm-hmm. you learn how to do that by doing that. Yep. Right? You You become a... A guitarist by playing the guitar, right? You cannot learn how to play the guitar unless you have a guitar on your lap. You you cannot. Right. Um, and so then he says, you become just by doing just acts. Temperate by doing temperate acts. Brave by doing brave acts. These mm-hmm. these are like um, uh, inclinations of your your being, right? Yeah. But you learn them by doing them. You yep. don't learn them by reading a book of uh, quotations that are inspiring and then go, okay, good, I've absorbed that. I yep. am now just brave and temperate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Just like you can't read a book and say, great, I am now a guitarist who can cut dovetails and whatever, wire a house. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, so I think thinking about, you know, parenting books, I'm just trying to jump over to these different kinds of uh, capacities people work on, parenting skills. You know, you could say, I'm going to read all these books about parenting and try to figure out how to be a good parent. Um, but I can have all that that knowledge. But what's going to happen is my kids are going to ask me some hard questions. Mm. And I'm going to have to... like, wait, what chapter was that? Darn it, I don't remember. Yeah, I'm going to have to put that book down yeah. or, you know, stay up late talking with my son and trying to sort through stuff. I need to sacrifice and say... I need to be here to, you know, to serve my kid, to help them to mm-hmm. sort through these things. That's how you learn how to parent. Yeah. And and part of it is, you know, going back to the idea of wisdom as like basically a working knowledge of the way the world is. Yep. You can, you know, you get asked questions that are hard that you've never even thought about, mm. right? But having that that knowledge of the way the world is allows you to to dig into that problem and to weigh it and to say, 
this is what I think the truth is in this situation, or yep. this is the direction you should go. You're you're kind of delving into that wisdom slash knowledge yep. and working it out. Yeah, wisdom is, yeah, as you said it, we've said it a few <laughs> times, wisdom is knowing the way the world is, mm-hmm. having a clear picture for the way things work, who people are, you know, yep. what we're doing here. Um, it's uh, teleological. There's mm-hmm. an end as a goal. There's something, it's this cosmology thing. You know, all of that, all those kinds of ways of describing it, when your kid comes to you with this bizarre question out of left field, yeah. if you haven't, you know, studied that particular question, right. you still got to be able to respond with something. Right. And if you do have wisdom, uh, you have a, a bigger sense that it does fit. Yeah. You can say, well, how about this? Yeah. So uh, yesterday we started building a cabinet for your sink, mm-hmm. right? So we're looking at, we have, you have this big old, it's like an enamel steel old sink with the drain boards on both sides and the sink. And so we know where it has to go in the the cottage. There's not much room. So it has to go a very specific. (laughs) We know exactly where it has to go. We know exactly where it's going. Within a quarter of an inch. Yeah. Within, and yeah, there's no wiggle room and we have to fit this little mini fridge under it on one side and there has to be room for a trash can. We're like, okay, how do we build this cabinet? to hold this thing and house it in this location. So we said, okay, we know where it has to go. So let's start with that. Let's start by putting it there. And then like, we don't have this plan, right? (laughs) We don't have measured drawings of what this needs to look like. What we have is a a little bit of knowledge of how wood works and how it can go together. And the sink. And the sink. So we have this very physical thing, the sink, we have wood, we have lots of wood. We have tools that we can uh, adjust the wood as mm-hmm. we need to. So we start by making a cleat and hanging, putting the back of the sink exactly where it needs to go and supporting the front. And we say, okay, next step. We have to build the framework under this. So we're kind of going backwards, yeah. right? We're this not, isn't necessarily how you would typically build right. kitchen cabinet. But <laughs> it is exactly perfectly custom made for that exact space and yep. sink. And it again, it's not a plan. It's not... Um, we don't have any example of this, but only the um, what knowledge and skill we have of woodworking. Yeah, and the the need of the moment. Right, and to, so to respond to so it. we're we're applying that in a very practical way. So now the sink, as we walked away from it yesterday, is uh, rugged and supported, and it's ready for shelves to be built under it and around yep. it. Um, and so. Um, this this article talking about an Aristotelian neuroscience basically um, was talking about technical habits, the the craft kind of habit. Um, technical habits um, are rational um, and they are goal oriented, goal directed, um, but also so it's not just that you're you're mastering certain motor skills, but it says, but also and more importantly, putting them into practice in the right way mm. and at the right moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that word right is exactly what we're talking about. Um, saying, I get it. I know what the right thing is in this circumstance. I know what needs to happen here because I have experience with wood or sinks right. or downhill skiing or you know, interacting with my son about this question he has. And knowing the right thing at the right time, there's no book. Right. There's no, there's no uh, tutorial that you can get that's going to cover everything. Yeah. Um, you got to be willing to be uncomfortable and get out and do something uh, that you've not done so you can 
develop this thing. Yeah. So we have all these different experiences, um, but the goal with that, I think, um, is somehow trying to figure out how to integrate them into mm-hmm. one. So Aristotle's talking about dispositions, talking about, you know, as I'm putting it, the kind of person who, right. you know, you have this this virtue, um, this disposition, and then one of those dispositions, one of those habits is uh, is a technical one. Yeah. There are other ones as well, um, theoretical and behavioral and different things like that. But the technical one, the, the hands-on technical habit, um, you know, we have to, uh, they're, they're not disconnected. It's not, you know, in, in his mind, um, and I think it's, it's correct. It's not like I, I can do uh, skill A and skill B and skill right. C and they're all disconnected, but you have to see it as part of an alphabet, right. part of one whole piece so I, I guess I'm curious, Mike, because you know we've been going through a lot of different stuff in this construction, um, and I have always admired the way that you're able to integrate and you have a, a broad knowledge of a lot of different things. So how, in, in your experience, have you, as you're learning new things and, ex- and coming up against uh, hurdles and you're assimilating, you're understanding new skills, how, how do you, practically speaking... Like, how do you make sure that that's integrated with the rest of mm-hmm. what you know about the world? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, you know, when we we work with, like yesterday, we were working basically with wood and metal. Like that, fasteners are metal, wood mm-hmm. is wood. We also were working with plastic, right, roofing. Mm-hmm. And all these materials respond in different ways. They all have traits that you have to learn, right? So like if I'm uh, changing the oil on a vehicle or a motorcycle, there's a certain degree to which you tighten the oil pan bolt, but you don't go any further mm-hmm. and you just know what The that right is. amount. The right amount, exactly. So when you are, um, let's say you're doing rough carpentry and you cut a stud and you go and set it in and it's tight. You say, that's too tight. Or you say, I can drive that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so you have this understanding that's just, it's not built on anything but having done it before. Yeah, uh, yeah measure that difference. Right. Between not, the tightness of a stud. Yeah. Can you drive it or should you, you know, or should you trim it down? Take a half a saw blade off again or whatever. Yeah. Um, so all of those things are, it, it's really interesting how they cross over and you know materials are different and and everything like that but um being able to move from one one of these materials to another it just unlocks doors you yeah. know it it's very freeing and sort of getting back to the the inclination the kind of person who does mm-hmm. things right um <clears throat> part of that survey i was talking about earlier it was citing uh asking um these people like uh, if you can't do something, who do you look to? And like the vast majority majority of the respondents said, oh, I call my dad, mm. right? And so I think I'm thinking about that. Like, uh, it's like if you've seen the Red Green show, right? <laughs> if, if, if women can't find you handsome, at least from... they should find you handy, right? <laughs> so being, being handy, like that kind of person. And obviously that's a very, uh, that's a very physical description, like mm. able to use your hands. Yeah, handy, yeah. Or, um, the, the other one I really like is um, Yoga Sunquist shared the idea of 
so Sloyd, right, is is craft, but the um, the way they describe someone in his part of Sweden who is handy is they say into slurg, right, which means not uncrafty or not unhandy. So it's this like almost self-deprecating, this this humble way of saying, I'm not unhandy. Mm-hmm. And and I I absolutely love that, you yeah. know. This this sense that you are trying to foster an ability to interact with everything around you. Yeah. Um, and and I I think that that is one of the most valuable things that that people can do, and people can pass down to their kids today too. Um, <clears throat> one of our uh, apprentices this term was talking about how he didn't have a workbench, he doesn't have a workspace, and when he got signed up, he's like, okay, I got to make this happen now. So he built a bench out of scrap lumber in his living room, and they have five kids, and he says, inevitably. He'll start doing an operation and his kids go and they gather around and they watch dad. I mean, that I picture that as getting that could be intimidating, especially when you don't, you're just starting out. Yeah. But he's like, he's not only learning this and engaging this stuff, but he's showing his kids how to do it. And so they will approach it with far less uh, fearfulness and, um, far more familiarity than he does. And let's say he's in his 30s. His kids are like six years old and they're seeing it. And well, so they're learning And I men. would say even more important than showing his kids how to do it, he's showing his kids that you can do that it. That you can do it. People yep. can make workbenches in yeah. their living room in their when living they have room. a young family with kids. Mm-hmm. That can happen. And, and so, yeah. his his kids are growing up knowing, oh yeah, you can make workbenches. And I, I guarantee those kids can change their own light bulbs or they will be able to, <laughs> They will, you yeah. know, because they're seeing, oh yeah, working with your hands and thinking creatively is just what yeah. we do as human beings. Yeah. So that's, uh, that is rich. We went from cause, you know, Aristotelian neuroscience to cosmology to the red green show. Yes. And I think yeah. on that note, we should yeah. wrap up because uh, yeah. we have a roof to finish putting on. Yeah. Uh, that addition, and we got the kitchen to finish. Oh man, we had a long list of stuff. Yeah, yeah. good stuff to do. So, everyone, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. Uh, if you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them uh, below in this blog post. Uh, you can go over to the Mortis and Tenon Daily Dispatch and interact with us regularly there. Uh, we love to hear CS from you. Fumble. CS Fumble <laughs> every day on the regularly. construction. Yep. So uh, I guess as Red Green would say, everybody, uh, keep your stick on the ice.